fake news in terms of what everyone is concerned about today is really just another kind of propaganda. So when in the 2016 election, this news report uh, began spreading like wildfire on the web that there was uh, some kind of child pornography, predation ring, whatever was going on in a pizza place in Washington, D.C., and the, the people who were running it were John Podesta, who is Clinton's campaign manager, Anthony Weiner, we know who he is, that's why they threw him in there, and he basically, right, Uma Abedin was his wife, and Uma Abedin was Hillary Clinton's uh, prime assistant, and Hillary Clinton were running that child predation ring. Well, one demented person showed up there with a gun, and this obviously isn't a laughing matter, having read the fake news. Fortunately, they, they stopped him before he did anything, but he was taken in by that. And again, it had enough of a sprinkling of truth in there, I guess because of Anthony Weiner, that you know some people were taken in and, and believed it. But I just want to also say what has now happened is the main threat and the main danger emanating from fake news is not even any more fake news itself, but it is the clever way in which Donald Trump and his adherents have turned the tables and labeled any news report that they don't like as fake news. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. I'm thrilled with the reception to the first five episodes, and I'm working on getting some really exciting special guests for upcoming episodes. Today, I have one of those. His name is Paul Levison. He's an expert on contemporary media, an expert on fake news, and the serial author of multiple science fiction books. But first, let me remind listeners again that I'm giving away a dozen books in a raffle shortly to people who write a review of Think Bigger, Think Better on iTunes. Here's a dirty secret. I have fewer reviews than books to give away. So if you do write a review, you're virtually guaranteed to get one of the best-selling contemporary books that I have. Go to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to find out how to write your review. To give you a spoiler on future episodes, after this episode, we're going to be talking with a leading authority on populism. It's a word that's tossed around sometimes approvingly and sometimes pejoratively. But what the heck does it mean? Is populism a good thing? Do you have to be popular to be populist? And following that, we are going to have one of the leading experts in the world on personal change, Mark Walsh, who works not only in global businesses, but also in war zones and on global peace initiatives. So now let me tell you about today's guest, Paul Levinson, PhD, he's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York. He is a character. His many books, I think there are about 30, include The New New Media, and McLuhan in the Age of Social Media, but his science fiction stories and novels have been nominated for Hugo, Nebula, Sturgeon, Edgar, Prometheus, and Audi Awards. He has appeared on CNN, on NBC, on The O'Reilly Factor on Fox News, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic, and the History Channel, NPR, and many other radio and television programs. He was listed in the Chronicle of Higher Education's top 10 academic Twitterers in 2009. He has an immense following and is a very interesting guy, as you will soon see. Paul, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Let's talk, if we can, about a book. I still, I'm researching a book on fake news. Listeners will already know that. Well, it's going to be called Fake News. It's going to be called Truth Wars. It's a little broader than that. But... I ran across you and your opus. I ran across fake news and context in the wonderful world of Amazon. I clicked on it and uh, it arrived the next day. And you're an expert and you're on the radio and everything. So I get a chance to talk to you and, and learn a little bit about from your study on it. So tell me, well, tell listeners, what's fake news and what makes fake news fake news? 
Well, that's obviously the uh, the big question. And I always start off by pointing out that what makes fake news fake news, it's not that it's fake. It's that it's deliberately fake. And that word deliberately really is the whole story. Because if you look at the history of news, you know, the history of journalism, the history of reporting, there have been errors all the time. That's because human beings are doing it. You know, reporters and editors, no matter how careful they fact check, they're not angels. You know, think about the New York Times and Jason Blair. I guess this was what, like maybe back in 2002, when the news broke that he had been basically, you know, making up stories you know, as he went along, he was a reporter, but the editors of the New York Times didn't know that. So in that situation, Jason Blair was creating fake news because he, for his own purposes, they weren't political. He was just lazy. Rather than going somewhere and interviewing people, he made up the interview. He had a lot of talent as a writer. You know, he should have written some fiction altogether. But so he knew what he was doing. So in his case, it was fake news. But the New York Times as a publication were taken in by him for a good couple of years. And that's why, by the way, the New York Times, uh, it always struck me ever since I've been a kid, you see at the bottom of the front page, from time to time, very often, in fact, something called errata, or it could be erratum. And, you know, it sounds like it's some kind of erotic thing, but it isn't. It's Latin for error. And they're basically admitting the New York Times that there are errors in their publication. So making mistakes even though the result is something that's fake, not true, uh, is not the essence of fake news. The essence of fake news is for whatever purpose to deliberately deceive people. And that actually makes fake news a kind of propaganda which also is designed to appeal to people's emotions, to get them to make decisions not on the basis of evidence or facts or logic, but to basically short circuit the rational process and get people to you know, come to conclusions that uh, they wouldn't if they thought about it rationally and if they were in control rationally. So you know, if you think about any ad, and uh, that, that you see on television or anywhere. That's not presenting the complete truth. That's basically deliberately slanting the truth, sometimes in a ridiculous way, but it works. You know, for, for many years, there used to be a series of television ads, and you, you no doubt will remember Marcus Welby, the famous doctor on ABC. It was a, a, a pretty good series. He was like a wonderful doctor, and I think Robert Young was the actor who played him. Uh, he had a long career, and by this time in his life, he was like a kindly old man, and he was like the most considerate doctor. <laughs> if you had a sniffle, he would show up at your house the next day. How are you doing? Are you still sneezing? I mean, the guy was unbelievable. So Sanka, which I don't even know if they're still in business, but in those days, they were basically the only place where you could get decaffeinated coffee. It tasted terrible, but they were you know, able to have a pretty good business going for decades because some people wanted something that tasted at least distantly like coffee, but didn't have caffeine. And so the, the Sanka people hired Robert Young, the actor, to be sitting in a diner and next to him is this guy who's like drinking, you know, obviously some coffee and he's all jittery and nervous. And, you know, Robert Young in his Marcus Welby role says, gee, I see you're a little nervous. May I make a suggestion? And the guy says, yeah, what is it? And he says, may I suggest you try Sanka brand decaffeinated coffee. It'll, it'll calm you down. And then boom, through the magic of, uh, you know, television production, we uh, flip ahead to the next day. And there's the same poor, you know, Schlemiel sitting there, you know, drinking, uh, you know, coffee. But he's actually looking, uh, you know, pretty good. And who walks in? But again, Robert Young says, hey, I see you're, you're drinking Sanka brand coffee. Did it work out for you? And the guy says, oh, yes, thank you so much. So the point is. That Sanka commercial was getting people to look at that character, the Robert Young character in the ad, as if he was a doctor. 
even though logically everybody knew he wasn't a doctor. But emotionally, people related to him as a doctor because they were used to seeing him on television. So that's just one, uh, and that, that's a, a comical, but I think uh, you know, very good example of how traditional propaganda works. Fake news in terms of what everyone is concerned about today, is really just another kind of propaganda. So when, in the 2016 election, this news report uh, began spreading like wildfire on the web that there was uh, some kind of child pornography, predation ring, whatever was going on in a pizza place in Washington, D.C., and the, the people who were running it were John Podesta, who is Clinton's campaign manager, Anthony Weiner. We know who he is. That's why they threw him in there. And he basically, right, Uma Abedin was, was his wife, and Uma Abedin was Hillary Clinton's uh, prime assistant, and Hillary Clinton were running that child predation ring. Well, one demented person showed up there with a gun. And this obviously isn't a laughing matter. Having read the fake news, fortunately, they, they stopped him before he did anything. But he was taken in by that. you know. And again, it had enough of a sprinkling of truth in there, I guess because of Anthony Weiner, that you know some people were taken in and, and believed it. But I just want to also say what has now happened is the main threat and the main danger uh, emanating from fake news is not even any more fake news itself, but it is the clever way in which Donald Trump and his adherents have turned the tables and labeled any news report that they don't like as fake news. Well, let me let me take a contrary perspective here. So the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria story doesn't stop there because even though that guy was arrested, there were people who said, we'll go and finish the job. So that wasn't the end of the story. And that story was so viral. I, I can't remember. Did it get shared a million times? That's yeah, it was, it, was, it was all over the place. All over the place. So material harm for fair news. But say we have to make a judgment about to call something fake news and I don't want to get into semantics here too much, but let's get into it a little bit. You have to know someone's intention. So it's their intention to deceive. So let's take InfoWars, which I've obviously researched a little bit. So InfoWars, Alex Jones believed that the Sandy Hook massacre of children was false flag. The children were actors. The police, the first responders were actors. This was all staged as part of a government conspiracy to take away our guns. And he believes the same thing with Las Vegas and and more, more or less all of these mass shootings in the United States are staged by the government in order to take away citizens' guns and their rights. And so he believes this, and he's got more than a million downloads on YouTube, Alec Jones, InfoWars. Mm -hmm. uh, and the guy, from my perspective, is nuts. Is that fake news? Because his intention, I think he believes this stuff. Right. That's an interesting question. Intention is usually essential if the person who is creating and disseminating the fake news knows that it's false and is doing it to deceive. But now that uh, you mention it, yes, I think another aspect of that is if a person is so demented that he or she believes something is different than the reality. So, for example, that Sandy Hook was staged by the government, or, you know, another version of that is that no one was really killed there, and the whole report of all those, you know, poor children and people who lost their lives, that that's false. If that story was created as an expression of someone's dementia, that is, the person is literally out of his or her mind, then yes, that is fake news too, even though there's no intention there. So I, I think that's a good uh, qualification that, that you added. I don't know Alex Jones. I, I would have to know him directly, one-on-one. -on -one, so I couldn't say whether or not he is, he seriously believes what he says to be true, or he just thinks that's a good idea. I'll give you, though, someone that I did meet you know, a bunch of times because I was on his show at least three or four times. And in fact, he interviewed me just this past summer for his podcast, Bill O'Reilly from Fox News. Indeed. And yeah, people always ask me, 
First of all, they asked me, well, why'd you go on his show? And I basically say, because I never turned down a request <laughs> for an interview, but, you know, because I'm arrogant enough to think that even if the interviewer has motives in interviewing me that I don't agree with, that I'm good and sharp enough to basically get the truth, at least as I see it out there. So I don't agree with almost anything O'Reilly said to me in the interviews or anything he ever said. So people often ask me, does O'Reilly really believe what he says, or is he doing it because he thinks it's going to be good television and he knows he has a you know, loyal viewer base that wants that? And obviously, uh, you know, I, I can't get inside O'Reilly's head, but if I had to make a choice and my life depended on it or the life of a loved one or it, it was that important if some devil came to me and said you have to either tell me one thing or another either o'reilly really believes what he says all the time or he's just doing it to basically keep his ratings high i would go with the latter i think that o'reilly doesn't really believe most of what he says that's just the, the sense that i have so to get back to alex jones obviously the things that you described are just batshit crazy. But it's not clear to me that he knows that and is doing it because he also wants to cultivate his loyal, insane audience, or he believes it's true. And only someone who knows the, the person very well could really make a conclusive judgment on that. It's very interesting because, you know, as a psychologist, one of the things that we can't ever know is someone's intention that's you know meta, you know epistemologically impossible and even sometimes people don't know their own intentions or and this is a, a philosophical question whether you're able to be self-deceived about your own intentions and hiding as they say in one case hiding a good motive under a bad motive or a bad motive under a good motive since we can't know people's motive but let's try and be helpful why is cnn not fake news how can we make that call a long, long time ago, a really long time ago, because this was, <laughs> you know, I was born in 1947, so this must have been something I began thinking about in the late 1950s when I was 10 or 11 years old. And, you know, I was not yet a professor or an author, but I guess I became what I became because even back then I was thinking about it. And uh, I remember back then saying, hey, how do I know what I read in the paper is true? I guess I had read 1984, you know, George Orwell's book, which was published in 1984, and that's what got me thinking about it. I read it like when I was 10 or 11 years old. And obviously their big brother, the totalitarian society, creates all kinds of fake news, and, and most of the people believe it. So I was asking myself, I didn't really discuss it with anyone, but I was wondering in a way that a, a precocious kid might wonder. How do I know that what's in the Times is true? And, you know, how do I know in, in those days there was no cable? How do I know that, you know, that Walter Cronkite, whoever it is, Douglas Edwards, you know, on the CBS Evening News is, is telling the truth? And uh, the best that I could come up with is if more than one source is saying this, and if there is no connection between the sources. That is, if we have reason to believe that the sources came up with this information independently, then in that case, we, I think, could have some reason to think that the story was at least truthfully reported, although it's certainly possible that more than one source could have the same incorrect original source of the story. But in terms of intentionally deceiving, if more than one independent source is reporting the story, I think that's a, a good beginning to having confidence in what the story is. So to get now into the present, the 2017 and CNN, how do we know that CNN is not fake news? First of all, again, I would never in a mean year say that CNN or any news organization reports only the truth and only facts, because I think that they can make errors. I think they can be deceived and so forth. But I don't think that CNN in general deliberately tries to deceive. Now, 
But I do want to add there that any news organization always makes editorial decisions. CNN makes a decision, what are they going to report and what are they not going to report? The New York Times makes a decision, what's going to be on the front page, what's going to be in the newspaper altogether. So those decisions, they might well be sincere, honest decisions, but those decisions are gatekeeping the news, that is, letting some things through the gate so we can know them and keeping others out. So in that sense, it could be that we're not getting the full story, and I'm sure that happens all the time. But in terms of deliberately concocting a story, such as the pizza parlor in Washington uh, pedophilia story, I have no reason to think that CNN you know, or MSNBC, or even Fox, for the most part, deliberately do that. So when Trump bellows, because CNN says that he is planning on doing something, there are sources inside the White House that tell CNN, and Trump says that's fake news. And just the, I think it was, it was, it happens every day. It was either this morning or yesterday. Who remembers? There was some report in the Washington Post about something that Trump was thinking about. I guess maybe, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I know what it was. It was a report about Gorsuch, you know, the Supreme Court justice that Trump appointed, that Trump was furious at Gorsuch after Trump appointed him because he thought that Gorsuch wasn't complimentary enough to Trump, that Gorsuch should have been more grateful. This was a story in the Washington Post. Trump denounced that as fake news. So, you know, I have no reason to doubt in general, what the Washington Post is reporting. It's possible that they were misled by a, a source for whatever reason. But as you know, you know, most of these news organizations don't report anything unless it's confirmed by more than one source. I have, by the way, a funny story to tell you about that. I heard about this years ago about a radio station in Texas. A, a guy, a disc jockey is on. It's like two o'clock in the morning. A drunk calls in and says, there's a big fire raging down, you know, on whatever street. And he says, okay, but the disc jockey knows this guy is a drunk and he's trying to decide whether to report it or not. And he, it's like two o'clock in the morning and he calls the police. He can't get any answer, but he realizes, you know, he, he has some responsibility to report this, but he doesn't know whether it's a true story or not. So finally he says, all right, look, I, I have like, you know, you know, some breaking news to report. A usually unreliable drunken source who is <laughs> drunk tells me that's a fire. You decide. So, you know, radio stations, television operations, newspapers are always trying to, to get, you know, the truest sources. And whether it's the Washington Post or CNN, I have an open mind about this. And, you know, if somebody has evidence that there is some kind of systematic effort there to make up false stories about Trump or anyone else, I would like to see the evidence. So far, Trump and no one that I've known or seen has presented that. They claim it all the time, but they don't present it. Well, there's an interesting distinction because Roy Moore, when I can't remember if it was nine or seven women came forth uh, eventually and accused him of sexual misbehavior of various severity a long time ago when he was in his 30s, he said it was fake news. And to me, I mean, they misused the term. They threw the term around con like confetti, so they don't really have either the intellect or the will to think about what they're saying. But it's not fake news that the women are saying that. Right. It's 100% true. Now, whether a news organization like The Post ought to report what's hearsay, so someone said that someone said that Gorsuch said that Trump was upset. You know, there's a there's a way, there's a part of me that thinks that sort of hearsay is, is first of all, it's like tawdry. And, you know, I don't really care what, what we've developed to this 24-hour news cycle is commentary and the commentary and the commentary and the commentary. So it's this chain, the chain of he said, and I find it, I find it irritating. I find it boring. I mean, I, I sort of tune in from time to time on the radio. I don't, I don't listen to, I don't watch television news or something like that. But we've created a world where in order to generate interest and drama, we have, you know, again, commentary on commentary. And I, I find that sort of reporting on hearsay to be kind of boring, even when it accords with, you know, what I'd like to believe about the world. Like, uh, 
was Secretary of State Tillerson calling Trump a moron. I mean, he, he did or he didn't. And there's part of me that rubs my hand in glee when someone who's a respected former chief executive says something about someone I also think is a moron. But in a way, it's not a really interesting, it's not a the sort of he said, she said stuff is not, from my point of view as a, as a listener, we shouldn't, I don't think. I don't think we ever will not, but I don't think we should take an interest in that sort of scurrilous talk, almost like the reporting on the gossip. Back to fake news, though. What are we, I don't know, I'm going to let you wave a wand. So what can consumers do to, in a sense, protect themselves? And I suppose it's worth saying today that consumers are also producers of news. So the prosumer is sometimes a really clumsy word that's used. Well, what could consumers do to protect themselves? And what sort of institutional or media reforms or structural reforms do you think we need in society? Sort of two questions there. Sure. Well, the first question gets back to what I was saying about what I came up with in the late 1950s, early 1960s. How do you know whether something in the New York Times is true? Well, if the New York Times is saying it, if CBS is saying it, if the Washington Post is saying it, if NBC is saying it, if uh, I don't think there were any all-news all radio stations back then, but there were a few years later, if they were saying it, then chances are what you are hearing, reading, or seeing is true. One of the wonderful things about social media and those people who know me in the academic world know I'm very atypical because I am an unabashed optimist about communication and technology. And I think by and large, the democratizing power that social media have given people and you know, prosumers, but j just even in terms of this question, we've never had more facilities readily at hand for checking whether a story is true or not. Now, the problem is a lot of people act on impulse. And for a lot of people, all they need is just one report and they are convinced. And furthermore, you know, in terms of Leon Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance, which goes back to the 1950s and what McLuhan talked about, narcissus, narcosis, you know, falling in love with our own reflections. If we hear or see or read something that supports something that we already agree with strongly, we'll accept that without seeking any further confirmation or verification. But the best technique that consumers of you news can have, and they have never had, and we have never had, because we're all consumers, we've never had better facilities and really easy ways of uh, acting on this in history, never as much as we have now, is to check. And, you know, this is something that people are starting to do. They, they read something somewhere and they Google it and see who else is reporting it. And if only one place is reporting it, you know, usually what happens is uh, pretty shortly someone says this is not a true story. So we need to keep in mind we're still at the very early stages, even the infancy or early childhood of social media. Twitter and YouTube didn't exist before 2006. And, and Facebook is just a few years older than that. So this is very young in terms of media. And I think people are slowly beginning to realize that they can use these tools to sort out truth from falsity. Now, as far as the media themselves and as far as social media one of the problems with social media, and even though I'm a, an advocate of social media and an optimist, I'm not at all blind to the problems, is that they did not think of themselves as news organizations during and through the 2016 election. They thought of themselves as, well, social sites where people could talk about things. And so news would come up there, and it didn't matter to them whether the news was fake or true or something in between. And they, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, took no action to in any way filter that news, look at it more carefully. Now, that approach actually has some powerful benefits because what it means, and again, this gets back to what you said about prosumer, it means that you don't have to be a reporter for the New York Times. You don't have to be 
someone who's talking on CNN or MSNBC or Fox to deliver the news. Anybody can deliver the news. That's the great benefit of it. In other words, it takes down those gates. And I think that is by and large a good thing because up until very recently, only a very, very small number of people could get their ideas, their reporting, their, okay. So that it's a good thing, but it had problems. And I think that it, the learning curve has been steep, but we are beginning to see Twitter and Facebook, and I outlined some of these things uh, in, in my book, Fake News in Real Context, begin to apply various techniques to at least flag things as fake news. Now, what, one of the problems, and anybody who works with computer programming will tell you the same thing, you know, it's very easy to glibly talk about algorithms. You know, why can't Facebook just, you know, put together an algorithm to weed out fake news? Algorithms are not, you know, something that can tell whether something is true or false that quickly. The, you know, the current crop of algorithms can tell what I'm interested in seeing because, but they don't know if what I'm seeing is true or not. So the, the, the sort of ugly reality is at this point in time, it takes a human being to see something, say, you know what, that doesn't seem to me to be true. Now, Facebook obviously has billions of people pumping information into it. You know, they're not going to hire a staff of a billion people to check what everybody else is doing. But they are beginning to bring some human curation into that. And uh, I think that's a good thing as well. But as long as we're on this subject, I want to point out something which I recently wrote about in an article for uh, an online site called The Conversation. It was picked up by AP, and so it's all over the place. What I don't think should happen and what I don't want to happen is the government getting involved in any kind of regulation of social media. And th there are many good reasons why that, I think, is a very dangerous thing. The first and foremost is we have a president now who says what I think is true, he thinks is fake. And he's basically said, he, you know, he, he wishes, uh, you know, some of these, you know, places we go out of business go away. The last thing we need are is the FCC to try to regulate them and, you know, shut them down in, in any way. And, you know, that's, a, a, in my view, an ipso facto violation of the First Amendment anyway. By the way, I think the FCC in general is its very existence violates the Congress shall make no law provision of the First Amendment. But so if we're talking about what I see as the best things to do, those best things, I think, need to come from the social media themselves. The traditional media, and I'm including cable news, you know, in traditional media, they already have fact checkers and producers and editorial people, as do the traditional newspapers. And they are, I think, already doing a pretty good job. Again, nobody is perfect. It wouldn't hurt if they were even more careful if they stepped up their game a little bit. But th that, I think, is the way that we can best approach this problem. Keep the government out of it. And at the same time, educate and encourage consumers to not believe the first thing they see in a tweet or on Facebook, to try to resist that and check things out before they come to conclusions. So your intuitions are you're a very strict, the strictest possible interpretation of the First Amendment. I come from Europe. I spent the last 30 years in Europe. And we're a little tougher on hate speech. We're a little tougher on libel. We're a little tougher on slander. We're a little tougher on incitement to violence. And uh, I think, well, I mean, we're in an interesting conversation. I mean, nobody wants to, in any means, restrict the press officially. But although, if you listen to Donald Trump talk about the press, you sometimes wish that he wishes that it would go away. And, um, yes. and that's the way authoritarian people have always, I don't know if you read this book on tyranny by this guy, Timothy Snyder, who's a who's a Yale guy, and he talks about the parallels between current times and, and Nazi Germany. And, you know, a lot of people make fun of such parallels. But one of the things he's at pains to remind us of is that Hitler was democratically elected. And then he went, yes. and went about disabling institutions, including the media, that would have held him to account to the people he elected him. 
And so the, one of the things you would do as an autocrat was you would say, these institutions which hold me to account, the FDI, the Department of Justice, the media, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the investigation, you'd start to disable them. And if you could disable them by official means, you try and disable them unofficially. And that's by using some of the labels of the FBI, some of the labels of the Justice Department, some of the labels of the media. Now, you're trying to disable the institutions which hold your power in check, which is an authoritarian move, no, without question. A hundred percent. And I'll, I'll mention another book, Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom. I think it was maybe like 1945, in, in which complementing in a bad way what you were just describing is Fromm's analysis, his psychoanalytic analysis, which I, I actually did a term paper on this when I was an undergraduate at City College many years ago, and it always stayed with me, how many adults like being treated as children. They want to be spoon-fed the answers. They want authority figures to tell them what to do. So authoritarian governments, as well as fake news, feed into this. But I just want to also say, apropos of what you said about Europe, as I'm sure you know, Germany passed a, a pretty stringent law just this past summer, fining you know, Facebook and so forth if they published fake news or hate speech. And you know, I'm sorry to say, and and you know, it, it pains me to say this. I mean, because I have friends in Germany. But I don't think those Germans learn the lesson that you just very accurately described regarding Hitler. You don't punish the media. You don't crack down on the media. The, and, and although the last thing that the current German government and, and German people in general now want to do is, is get back to a Nazi ideology, I don't think they realize that in their well-meaning attempt to ban hate speech, to find you know fake news, they're beginning to walk down that path. And that's why, as a matter of fact, in the last election, the far-right party in Germany, whatever it's called, surprised people by doing very well. I don't know if you know this, you know, the, the man in the high castle, yeah. this is Philip K. Sure. And Amazon made a- Movie, uh, uh, a, show, television yeah, show. Right, right. That can't be shown in Germany because you're not allowed to have swastikas you know, yep. shown on, and if anything, that series and that story is a devastating critique of Nazi uh, ideology. So, th this is a very serious issue. And uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier Karl Popper. I put together a collection of essays on Karl Popper for his 80th birthday. I think he's a brilliant philosopher of science and a social philosopher, but there was one aspect of his philosophy which I never agreed with. He came up with something called the paradox of tolerance, which is that if a tolerant society allows intolerant speech that is preaching destruction of that society, then the tolerant society is opening up the gates to its own destruction, and they should be intolerant to intolerant ideas. And I think that is a very, very dangerous approach. Well, that's what we sort of endorse in Europe. And I mean, the Germany are very, very strict about wanting to expunge all of the symbols from the dark days of their history. And they're more sensitive than almost any country I can think of to racist attacks on hate speech against Muslims and Allianz for Deutschland. Allianz for Deutschland, the far-right party, they did okay, but I'm very skeptical about the whether – I mean, I think Europe avoided in France and in Austria and in Germany and in the Netherlands. The far-right parties basically had a very bad 2016 they did a lot less. There was a lot of Sturm und Drang, as they say in Germany, about their possible successes. But we managed to help. We didn't hold them back, though, in Hungary's got a very authoritarian far-right government, and so does Poland. So the EU now is composed of 27 countries that remain in the EU of some very far-right authoritarian states in Poland and Hungary, and some very, you know, left-wing you know, heavily socialist states like Southern Europe and, and France, particularly, I guess Ireland would be included in that too. So it's an interesting experiment in federal democracy, uh, the European Union right now. Anyway, I digress. I'm very interested in these sorts of things. Let me ask you this before we stop. We've covered what people can do about it. What advice would you give, I don't know, to the millennial generation, to young people who are 
coming up in this crazy world, people who are much more accustomed to getting their news from social media and from their telephones than perhaps we were. What, what counsel would you give them? Well, it would be the same counsel I would give to everyone, but but apropos of you know younger people, uh, you know I always say to my students, trust your instincts. Basically, most people have pretty good instincts, and you know if something in terms of this fake news problem at all surprises you or doesn't seem you know to make sense that should be a trigger for you investigating it further that's half of it the other half gets back to what i was saying about uh, you know the fessinger's theory of cognitive dissonance we tend to shut out things that uh, shatter our preconceptions McLuhan's great example of the narcissist uh, Greek myth, the, the, this very handsome youth looks into a pool of water and shuts everything out. In one of the versions, basically, he falls into the pool and drowns. He's so in love with his own reflection. But that needs to be resisted. It, it, it can be resisted. You know, One of the things I, I mentioned in my book, Fake News in Real Context, there was a fascinating study that was done just about two or three years ago in Texas in which people were given a series of stories, some of which were true, some of which were fake. Before they were given that, they were identified based on filling out surveys, whether they were progressive or conservative. And then another variable was thrown in. Some of them were told that if you get the correct answer, you will have a one in 100 chance of winning a small gift. Oh, yes. I remember this research. Yeah, you talk about it in your book. It's very yeah. interesting. Tell us the story. Well, and it's, it's fascinating. What, what basically was discovered in that experiment is that, yeah, people tended to believe fake news if it supported what their political views were. So conservatives believe fake news that made progressives look like lunatics, and progressives believe precisely the opposite, fake news that disparaged conservatives. But as soon as a, that tiny financial sure, incentive was put into the mix, everyone suddenly said, no, nope, that's not true. That's entirely symbolic, really. It was nothing, right? But all of a sudden, people who were so inst instantly convincible and so instantly gullible when it accorded with their preconceived political views, all of a sudden were very astute at discerning the fake news from the real, which I think is a, that's a fascinating story. Uh, that's a fascinating story. You've, uh, you mentioned the BuzzFeed research, Craig Silverman's research with Ipsos, that people were many times more likely to share a fake news story than a real news story during the 2016 election. Yes, I, I didn't actually mention it, but that's just one of many examples. That it, it gets back again to the cognitive dissonance, uh, narcissus, narcosis. If the fake news supported what you believed and you have a group of people who you know believe that and are eager to see that, that basically, you know, greases the wheels of that process. And, and that's what needs to be resisted. In the end, you know, th this gets into like one of these fundamental questions. Uh, and I've always liked, you know, John Milton's view about this and his Areopagetica, this great tract about freedom of expression. In the end, e either you believe or you don't believe that human rationality, other things being equal, can separate truth from falsity. And if we believe that, then the thing that most needs to be avoided is closing the marketplace of ideas off to any information, because then we're not, we may well be shutting out the truth and leaving just falsity in the field, and then people cannot see the truth and make the correct decision. And there's no way you can prove that human beings are rational, because uh, anytime you try to prove that, you're acting sure. in a way that thinks rationality is worthwhile. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway. So if uh, I have my blog is called Paul Levinson's Infinite Regress. That's an example of infinite regress. But anyway, I do as a question of faith, you know, uh, or as George Santayana put it, uh, an irrational faith in reason. I I believe that there's uh, that human beings do have that rational ability. Well, you have a faith in you know I don't know about free market economic market, but you have a faith in free information market that the that basically there'll be some kind of market forces will and self organizing and self regulating and without heavy handed. You're, you're what's called in Europe, uh, we don't really have these in the United States, but it's called a left libertarian. So you lean left on many things, but as far as interference in the information space, 
particularly in the space of news, in the space of media, in the space of communication, then you're strictly libertarian, I would say. Is that right? Yes, 100% right. In fact, I would say I'm a progressive libertarian. And what you said about what I think about uh, government regulation of communications, strictly hands off, no regulation whatsoever, is that makes me a libertarian. But I also think you know, to get into a different topic, I, I think healthcare should be universal. And in the same way that the government defends us against human attackers, I think the government should defend us against microbial or genetic attackers as in cancer. So, I mean, because both can kill us in different ways. So in that sense, I'm progressive. I, I do think it's a, uh, the same right that we have to expect our government to defend us against other powers, sure. human beings who might kill us, we have a right to expect that our government's going to help us medically. I, I've never heard the argument before. But I'm going to ask you a hard question as a, a left libertarian or someone who's wants the strictest possible interpretation of freedom of press, this freedom of speech, net neutrality. Give us, give us your view. Should the government... In the case of an unregulated, I mean, what's your view there? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked because my colleagues think I'm out of my mind. <laughs> that doesn't That's not the first time. That's slightest. not the first time, right? That, that won't, be the first, won't be the last time either. The, I think net neutrality is, is unnecessary. And I think it's dangerous because, again, if it's administered by the FCC, the last thing we need is a government agency saying or doing anything regarding communications. But it turns out anyway that it's unnecessary. And just to give some several quick examples, net neutrality wasn't applied until June 2015. It was enacted a few months earlier. Nobody was basically being kept off the internet then as a result of it. Nobody was being charged exorbitant money. And, you know, and so the idea that we need it is itself, I think, something that just does not hold water. Obviously, Netflix and Amazon want net neutrality because they don't want to be charged more, you know, to, to get their content out there. I'm a great supporter of both Netflix and Amazon. I watch far more television on Netflix than I do any place else. But I have no problem with Netflix paying for that. And if they need to charge me a little more for that, fine. I don't I don't care. I'll drop my cable if I need to. You know, but obviously I don't I don't have a, have to make a choice like that. So I think that net neutrality is something that a lot of progressives have been whipped up about. I mean, I was amazed to see Rachel Maddow, who I usually respect on MSNBC. I still respect her, but I agree with almost everything she said. But she was also saying, you know, like a week or two ago, oh, my God, we're going to be shut off the Internet. You know, corporations are going to control the Internet. No, that's not the case at all. And furthermore, just another reason on this point the antitrust laws that prevent, let's say, for example, in, in my area, Verizon and Cablevision provide the internet access. Let's say the two of them decide, you know what, we're going to raise, there's no net neutrality, we're going to raise the price of everyone. Hey, that would be in violation of uh, antitrust laws. So I'm not saying we should disable the antitrust laws, but what I am saying is keep the FCC out of communication. Nothing that the FCC did has been helpful. You know, in the late 60s, they came up with the bright idea, you know, we're going to do something about this drug problem. And we are going to find stations and maybe not even renew their licenses if these radio stations play any songs that glorify drug usage. The net result of that was it kept off the air the temptations cloud nine. I'm doing fine on cloud nine. Basically, it was an anti Drug Thank you song. for that. It was basically, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I, Nicholas Johnson, who was then an FCC commissioner, I got to know him later. He spoke out against that law, but he, uh, that ruling of the FCC, but unfortunately he was in the minority. So the, the FCC threatened WBAI when they played George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words routine. They should 
keep out of communications and basically disband. That would be the well. Best I think thing. we've got too far in Europe for sure. For example, uh, there was a Danish newspaper that had cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, very kind of satirical things. Some of them are vulgar. Who cares? And I think also Charlie Hebdo, Charlie Hebdo, the French newspaper that was attacked, was also publishing satirical attacks on Islam. And uh, you know, the Danish newspaper came under some censure, I believe, from the government. I mean, they tried to restrict. There are in in England, we secularists are trying to have them repealed, but there are anti-blasphemy laws from dating from the 17th century or the 18th century or something like that, which are ridiculous. And so we have a sort of a legacy of controlled speech that hasn't entirely been undone. But I, I do worry about concentrations as of, of media power. I worry like Chomsky does that our our media are effectively all, at some sense, corrupted by financial influences. And there's a very scary thing. I think it's called Liberty Media now that owns a frightening percentage of local television news around the country. And they're using their corporate ownership of all of these local news stations to further an agenda that I would disagree with. But I'd like to think that I would disagree with what they're doing, even if they were trying to further a progressive agenda. And I think that's scary, but you think that our problems are with censoring media and communication will be covered by the antitrust laws, basically, by the, the laws that govern commerce will protect us from concentrations and abuse of power in the media space. Is that your is that your view? Yes, I think by and large. Obviously, it's not a perfect solution, but th that combined with the danger of the government in any way regulating communication, especially given now what we've heard Trump say many times, uh, leads me to strongly think that the government needs to stay out of communication. You know, as far as liberty media, I don't worry all that much about it because, again, people increasingly get news also from social media, sure. and and they're not going to necessarily believe everything they're saying. You know, as far as this government concentration, here are a couple of other examples. In the mid-1990s, everyone and their grandmother or grandfather were concerned that Microsoft had this almost chokehold monopoly on because everything was Word, Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. I wrote a piece, I can't remember what the title of it was, but it was published in something called The Industry Standard, and they titled it Leave Poor Microsoft Alone, a sort of sarcastic title, thank you, Industry Standard. But the point I made in the article was, take it easy, Microsoft doesn't have a stranglehold. The, the natural evolution of media is going to bring competition to Microsoft. Little did I know, as I was even writing that, within a year or two after that, Apple had its great resurgence. They had rehired Steve Jobs. And so now Microsoft, they're still important, but no one thinks they have a monopoly. The other thing is, you know, bear in mind that as far as, let's say, just television news is concerned, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, up through the beginning of the 80s and CNN, you basically had three news organizations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Sure. Three. Yep. Now, you still have those, you have Fox, you know, et cetera, et cetera, plus again, social media. So again, the natural evolution of media and pursuit of, you know, news solutions, getting news out there more effectively and the commercial motive leads to a natural uh, diversity of, of media. So that's why I'm not worried Well, the, about you that. use a word that I use a lot in my writing, democratization. The democratization not only – I mean, I think it's an amazing thing that a guy who's sitting in a hut in Kigali can basically access the great library and the great wealth of information through MOOCs, through media that we can. I think that democratization of consumption of knowledge – and I think we've yet to see what the power of – you know, having the wealth of the world's intellectual resources and knowledge at the disposal of 7.5 billion people. I mean, I optimistically, I'm like you, an optimist, think that that could be a great force for innovation and a great liberalizing, a great force for freedom and transformation. I, I mean, I'm too optimistic. But the democratization of producers is, as Chomsky, I believe, said that, you know, the media in the 1960s was middle class white men telling us what we ought to think and believe. And the democratization, of course, is a counterforce to that. Yes. One of my novels, uh, my time travel novels, is called Unburning Alexandria. And what, what I try to unburn is the library of Alexandria, ancient Alexandria, which was burned at least two or three times. Uh -huh. By some estimates, wiped out almost uh, three quarters of a million 
texts, scrolls, many of which were unique. We only know about a, a third to a half of Aristotle's right. uh, treatises on anyway that can't happen now yeah. because it, the world would have to be destroyed for that to happen and that's why I think this is such a, a good thing this being this digital democratization of information all right let's wrap up with the following question you're gonna love this I think you're gonna love this question you watch a lot of Netflix best shows science fiction shows best science fiction movies from the last couple of years go all right. Well, science fiction is easy for me. I love time travel. I'm just going to mention two that I just saw in the last two weeks. One is called Dark. It's a German series. It's in German with English subtitles. As a science fiction writer myself who writes time travel, I'm a stickler for getting the paradoxes of time travel uh, of right. And Dark does a great job of it. The other is Erased, which uh, interestingly, Germany and the, this other one is a Japanese time travel series. Very, very different based on Japanese ma uh, manga, which was very successful. Both of these are beautiful stories, and I highly recommend them to anyone. Other than that, I mean, Netflix is an unbelievable source. I thought Narcos, it's into its third season, is great. Just hearing the sarcastic commentary of the DEA agent is worth watching. We just finished watching the second season of The Crown. Fabulous. Black, Black you know, Mirror? Black Bla Mirror, is that one of yours? You, well, I, you know what? I've seen a few Black Mirrors. I think they're good, but I just never got into it. Maybe I, I, I couldn't either. That. I mean, I could see why people were crazy about it, but it absolutely baked my head, those first two, those first two <laughs> episodes. I couldn't believe What about Travelers? Uh, travelers? What about Yes, yeah, I thought, Travelers. I thought that was pretty Yeah, I thought that was pretty It was pretty interesting. It's pretty good. And it's coming back, I think, the day after Christmas on uh, West uh, Westworld, on any good? Westworld is excellent. That's on HBO. Artificial intelligence is one of the most fascinating issues. You know, that also gets to the question of what do we mean by human? And there's an inherent paradox in there, which I've been talking about and writing about for years. We invent robots and eventually androids because we want them to do dangerous jobs, boring jobs, jobs that we wouldn't want to do. But if we make them so intelligent that they are, in effect, humans, aren't we just creating another slave class and and Westworld does a very precisely good job. that question exactly exactly I mean I thought I thought it was brilliant of course Anthony Hopkins can't put a foot wrong in acting and yeah. one last question new Star Wars seen it what do you think no haven't seen it yet we're waiting until the crowds you know diminish but we'll probably see it in the next couple I couldn't of days. believe I had to book tickets I booked tickets six weeks in advance and I still got shitty seats <laughs> I mean, there were 20 of us. I mean, you know, there were, there were a whole yeah. bunch of us. It was a great family thing. My ex-wife, who's not a great sci-fi, she actually cried during parts of it. She said that's the best of the nine of them. And she's not a sci-fi person like at all, right? I mean, so uh, that's one data point anyway. But I enjoyed it a great deal. I thought they did a fabulous job. Look, this has been more interesting than I could say. Thanks a ton. We could chat for 30 seconds or so afterwards. Now we get to the cool section of the show when I get to talk about books, movies, podcasts, and other cool things that are out there in the world. We mentioned on the show On Tyranny, one of the books uh, for a Yale professor today that contrasts our current political climate with some of the autocratic regimes from the 1930s and 1940s. It's a fascinating read, and it's the sort of book that you can read in under an hour that really, really will help you perhaps understand our current political climate. Again, On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. But the two books that I really want to talk about are brand new. One is called The Once and Future Liberal, and it has attracted more attacks from the left than the right, even though the author, a Columbia philosopher, Mark Lilla, could be said to hail from the left. It, roughly, is a critique of identity politics, and so, therefore, has inflamed a number of people who would normally be attracted to the writings of Professor Lilla. Anyway, a fascinating book, and there's a link on my website to it. And then we also have today arrived from Amazon about last week, a book called The Age of Anger that seeks to understand the rise today of nationalism, racism, and misogyny, and how those can be traced back to the 18th century century of light or enlightenment or age of reason, depending on what you like to call it, and whether the roots of today's discomfort 
are in that, if you want, more enlightened beginning of the modern age. So again, The Age of Anger by Pankaj Mishra is another book that I'd like to feature during this segment, a fascinating read. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.